I mean, to do business in Russia in the last 30 years is to be involved in corruption. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Christopher Starke, and today we are continuing our special series on viewing the war in Ukraine through an anti-corruption lens. For that, we are excited to welcome Igor Logvinenko. Igor is an associate professor in diplomacy and world affairs at the Occidental College in Los Angeles. He has published an important book, which is very relevant to understand the current situation, and it is titled Global Finance, Local Control, Corruption and Wealth in Contemporary Russia. The interview covers Igor's book, obviously, but also a brief history in corruption in Russia, the current sanctions against Russia imposed by the rest of the world, and how Western jurisdictions are used to hide money. We believe that this episode adds another important piece to the puzzle to better understand the context that led to the horrific war in Ukraine. Now, over to the interview with Igor Logvinenko, interviewed by Matthew Stevenson. Greetings and welcome to Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson. Igor, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. It's my pleasure, Matthew. Thank you. So I'm going to want to ask you some questions about how your research relates to the current crisis and the context uh, in which that crisis is situated. But before we get there, Maybe it would be helpful if you could share with me and with our listeners a little bit more about your own background and the and the book and the research that's related to the book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right, sure. So my own background, I was born in the Soviet Union in, in Central Asia and what was then Kyrgyz Republic inside the Soviet Union. And, um, you know, when the, when the, the fall came, you know, and the new countries emerged, I and my family, we were citizens of Kyrgyzstan. And that's where I grew up in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. Um, you know, grew up speaking Russian, but family is mostly from Ukraine, from Eastern Ukraine. But uh, now, almost 100 years ago, um, a lot of them were relocated from different parts of Ukraine. Um, but my great great uncle, I think, was one of the first uh, Red Army commanders in Bishkek. And it's kind of funny because there's a street with my last name in Bishkek to this day. So it's kind of, uh, is a, you know, it's complicated fates of people of, the, of that part of the world. Um, but I've now lived in the United States for most of my life and, uh, you know, went to get my doctorate at Cornell and uh, did postdoctoral work at Columbia and uh, taught at Wellesley College before coming to Occidental two years ago. My my work is mostly about uh, kind of the political economy of various pathologies of post-socialism, corruption most relevantly being the, the key issue. And uh, the book that came out last year uh, was... M- motivated by this puzzle which is unraveling right before our eyes actually uh, the question that I sort of became enamored with I know exactly the date when I became enamored by it it was July 1st of 2006 and I can tell you why that is 
but you know how can a country that's become increasingly authoritarian increasingly corrupt increasingly dominated by the state in, in, in its economy being increasingly dominated by the state how come this regime uh, was so tolerant of being so deeply integrated into the global financial system you know as uh, as the government was introducing more and more controls in the domestic economy, it was removing controls on movement of capital across borders. And so that puzzle, that contradiction between free and open markets um, globally and a kind of closed political regime domestically and how can those two worlds coexist uh, motivated the book. Um, and the book, kind of the way it turned out, um, is uh, it became kind of a history of financial integration of, of, of Russia uh, after the Soviet Union, uh, financial you know, integration into the global financial system. And what I found is that, you know, corruption, what I, what I call in the book the rule of cloud as opposed to the rule of law, the rule of cloud, um, basically widespread corruption, has been one consistent uh, theme the sort of disputability of property rights, to use a more technical term, has been a theme throughout the entire 30-year period, which I would say ended on February 24th, 2022. Um, and alongside that sort of widespread corruption, rule of cloud, integration into the global financial system governed, broadly speaking, in external jurisdictions by rule of law, by independent third-party arbitration, that, that also was a consistent theme throughout the entire period, before Putin and during Putin. Now, that, that era has come to an end uh, a couple of weeks ago here, but um, the book covers the period basically from, you know, there's a bit of background on the Soviet reforms, but really, you know, 1992 to about 2020 or so, I think was when I turned in the last draft of the, of the manuscript. And the book came out in November of 21 and you know it's pretty much <laughs> has been um, made irrelevant in the sense that it no longer explains how things work in Russia but I think it gives a great background and prehistory of how it is that we got to where we are today. So I'm reminded actually what you just said of one of my uh, dissertation advisors and mentors who studied the American Congress. And he uh, was in the middle of a research project when there was a major reform of the entire congressional committee system. And he remarked to a friend of his, I went to bed a political scientist and woke up a historian. Uh, and it sounds right. like you went through a little bit of a something similar. Um, but before we proceed, I think you were getting at this, but, but I just want to um, ask you to elaborate a little bit more on the answer to that puzzle that, that you mm -hmm. posed so interestingly. So you said that you were motivated, uh, and I would love, by the way, to hear the story about the specific date that motivated mm -hmm. you in this way, um, but yeah. you were motivated to start investigating this puzzle of why it was that you got a country that was increasingly closed and controlled at home, mm -hmm. but at the same time was... Uh, liberalizing with respect to at least economic relations with the wider world and seemingly encouraging uh, global financial integration. So that strikes me as an interesting puzzle. It seems like something that's not unheard of. I feel like there are a lot of examples of countries that are pretty illiberal and pretty authoritarian, but also um, 
open to, to international economic engagement. But, but that was the way you set up the puzzle. Um, you talked a little bit about the role of corruption, about the role of clout, about uh, the rule of law abroad and so forth. But can I just ask you to maybe elaborate on this and to be a little bit more specific mm-hmm. about how you would answer that question that you pose? Why was it that Russia was so, and presumably the Russian government, the Russian leadership was so um, strongly encouraging global financial integration at the same time that the regime was moving in a progressively more illiberal direction. Yes. So there's, you know, a couple of ways of looking at, at this. There's one, there's a kind of a static period, you know, let's say under Putin after roughly speaking 2006, when broader openness served as a kind of vehicle for, I argue, intra-elite peace, basically. Um, so let's leave that to the side for a second. But in previous times, the book is structured around three key episodes of property redistribution, you know, so fights, this major reassignment of control rights to property. So the early, um, what's known as the voucher privatization period in Russia between 1992 and 94. Um, and then the second kind of uh, loans for share, what's not loans for shares, or this kind of scandalous privatization that took place in 1995-96 before Yeltsin's re-election, and then the this kind of revision of property rights that again took place when Putin came to power, roughly speaking between 2000, let's say 2001 and 2006. The dates don't quite align neatly, but. Um, the Yukos affair being the most famous among them, but also, you know, the government took uh, majority control of Gazprom uh, around that time as well. And what I found is that in each of these episodes of dynamic change, when new regime comes in or there's reassignment of control rights to property, which was just a natural consequence of state socialism when the, when the government controlled all property. And so there wasn't really a history of legitimation of privately assigning the rights what was previously seen as collective property. And so in all of these episodes, what was surprising to me in the course of research is that the Putin episode, which is the probably most interesting one and what got me interested in the in the, in the topic and probably most relevant for us today, but the Putin episode is took place exactly along the same lines as the previous two episodes in the sense that uh, you know, political um, elites who, through kind of domestic st- struggle behind closed doors, you know, sort of uh, bulldogs fighting under the carpet, you know, whatever the Churchill expression, um, whoever comes out on top essentially then embraces financial openness. But before that, they make all of these uh, steps and, 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 argue for rules and formal and informal regulations to make access to um, to sh- basically shares. And I really focus on the stock market, but uh, it goes broader, broader than that. Basically make it difficult for uh, foreign entities to gain you know, any kind of minority uh, control of, of these properties and then shift their position almost immediately and very instrumentally once they secure majority control inside the country. And so no access before the fight is over. Once the fight is over and the winner is known, the winner then promotes and and, and, and sort of uh, engages further in financial internationalization. It's important to note, by the way, is that at no period um, 
in Russia, was there ever a massive um, sort of majority ownership of shares by foreigners? There's some exceptions to that, like Luke Oil most famously has just um, uh, been in the news, of course, and in, in a little, so so much in the news. But you know, Luke Oil was one of the exceptions where a great deal of its float was owned by 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 people outside of the country. Uh, but more or less, because there is no property rights inside Russia, and because control over ownership of assets is governed through impersonal connections, uh, the very least you can do as an owner is to is to own a majority of shares as much as possible. Because then you effectively don't have to worry about corporate governance. Um, you you are the owner and the manager. Effectively, you know, managers are, are your employees, um, and you are the majority shareholder. So you don't have to worry about shareholders. So uh, so that was the case all throughout all throughout that period. Um, you know, of course, there's major differences between the Yeltsin and Putin timelines, and we can talk about that if that's of interest. But what happens in 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 that Sort of in 2006, I can tell you, on July 1st of 2006, um, I, I was already um, I was visiting my my, my parents in, in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, and my dad. To this day, unfortunately, unfortunately, I don't know, not probably mostly, unfortunately, watches the the Russian TV news at, at 9 p.m. The T Channel One, Vremya, uh, it's called. And uh, I remember sitting there, kind of half, half paying attention. And the anchor was talking about how a new dawn of Russia's role in global economy is of today or something like this. That Russia is now fully, you know, in, inside the global financial system. They present it all in terms of like the ruble is now on par with the euro and the dollar. And so this is the, this is the return to some kind of pre-Bolshevik, you know, Russia, czarist, Russia glory, completely historical in, in, in various ways. Uh, but the fact of the matter is they skipped a lot of the, over the details because as of July 1st, 2006, uh, the Russian Central Bank and other entities in the Russian government abolished all controls on a resident and non-resident movement of capital. And Russia became at that point the most integrated, the most financially integrated uh, emerging market, you know, more integrated than Brazil, India or China. And it was and it became evident during the 2008 and nine crisis. And that happened, and and I documented in the book. It happened along that timeline um, because by July first, two thousand six, it was pretty clear that you know uh, the government completed the takeover of Gazprom. Um, the government completed this whole uh, transfer expropriation of Yukos assets under the Rosneft flag, so to speak. And so, effectively, at that point, the government controlled majority ownership. And government and the basically managers appointed by Putin controlled majority interests in these major companies. And so now it was okay for foreigners to invest. Now it was okay for Russia to be fully integrated. In fact, they wanted that because, you know, uh, foreign ownership in those companies, uh, the listings of those companies abroad um, made made that um, reassignment of property, reconfiguration of property rights more legitimate. Give them access to global markets, raise the valuations of those companies. But I think more, most importantly, the, the it gave the stamp of approval from the global financial system that this is now a way the the control rights in these companies are assigned. These are the, effectively the owners, um, and we can do business with them. We can make money, and many other, and many companies did. You know, most. Well, famously, you know, and this brings us back to today. You know, I was so curious, and I was. Um, 
speaking to journalists last week and you know before, as this was unraveling and these articles will be coming out and be, you know almost immediately becoming history like you were saying uh, but I was waiting for what would happen with British Petroleum. You know, I was I thought they would they might hold out for a while, um, and no, you know, British Petroleum effectively I guess zeroed out their investment in Rosneft. I don't know what's going to happen with their stake. Um, you know, their stake. Just as an aside, British Petroleum increased its stake in Rosneft. Um, last year, about this time, their stake in Rosneft was up to over twenty percent which was an all-time high. And this was after Crimea, after, you know, all of 2014. It was after the you know, allegations of electoral interference in the United States and poisoning of Skripal in, in Great Britain and all the shenanigans that took place over the last decade did not prevent uh, British Petroleum from withdrawing from Russia or reducing their investment or anything like that. And this, it, that becomes an important part of the story this sort of the stasis part of the story, the fact that this financial integration kind of stabilized the regime and throughout the turbulations of, you know, all, all that Russian economy has gone through between, you know, with the global financial crisis, we don't forget there was something like a Cyprus crisis that took place in 2012, 2013. There was all these calls for deauthorization that amounted to nothing. Uh, we also forget that the sanctions against Russia began not with Crimea, but they began with the murder of Sergei Magnitsky in 2012. It was Barack Obama who signed the first uh, tranche of sanctions almost 10 years ago in December of 2012. And throughout this whole period, Russia remained financially open. And now these Western corporations, investment entities, banks, pension funds, none of them withdrew their investments from Russia. And I think that really reassured Putin that Putin and the government that, you know, he can probably get away with almost anything and it would not cause this sort of reaction that we've seen over the last few days. And I think he was rational to believe that. And, um, and I think the elites in Russia are shocked and surprised because the system worked this way for, well, 15 years or so. It is fascinating. I mean, a lot of what you say resonates with things that I've heard or things that I've read. Many people in the commentary have described Putin is potentially irrational or no longer rational. But what you just said suggests, well, maybe, but, but maybe not. Um, everything that had happened over the last dozen years might have led him to believe that Russia actually had a lot of leverage, that there might be some more sanctions, they might be ratcheted up a bit, there might be some international condemnation, but basically there wouldn't be any fundamental rupture in Russia's relationship, its economic relationship, let's say, with, with the rest of the world. Um, and I'm sure political scientists will be writing dissertations for years to come, um, <laughs> trying to explain why this was so different. But one of the things I want to ask you about, since you know, you, you, obviously you wrote the book before all this happened, it came out in 2021, but since you do have such a deep understanding of the nature of Russia's global financial integration and its relationship to Russian domestic politics... What do you imagine the impact of the current sanctions or expected future sanctions might be? I mean, I've, and, I, and just to give a little context for why I'm asking the question, right, we, uh, it's probably obvious. There's been something of a debate about how much this is going to matter, uh, at least in the short to medium term. There seems to be pretty widespread agreement that it will not be good for Russia's economy. 
but there seems to be a, 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 some variance in terms of uh, people's expectations for how much the sanctions will matter, which sanctions will matter more than others, uh, what the political fallout from the sanctions might be. So can you offer your perspective on that cluster of related questions? Yeah, I would say, I mean, it, it, it depends on, I think, I guess some of the assumptions embedded in your question, I would, I would want to unpack first. One is this idea that sanctions as uh, tools of pressuring governments to do this or that, that's sort of a complicated, um, complicated assumption because, you know, will more sanctions stop Russian military from advancing on Kiev? I, it, it would be difficult for me to, to imagine. I think even the harshest of sanctions aren't likely to have this type of very short-term effect. And even if they do, we will never be able to, we, yeah, you're not going to be able to get inside the brain of Putin to figure out what exactly caused it. But are they creating an environment in which um, there's fewer and fewer options on the regime and the pressure from the population is more and more, um, let's say the, there's greater and greater conflict between politicians in Russia and regular citizens or, or wealthy people who are not maybe directly involved in politics, although there are no such, there are no such people in there. There's, there's no oligarchs who are not involved in politics in Russia. Um, so, so you know, it's it's complicated. There, there's often this refrain that, and the research in political science has shown that sanctions are broadly ineffective. But it depends on what you mean by effectiveness, and it depends on also if you assume that sanctions are done just on behalf of governments to pressure the target, you know, target states to change their behavior. I think what's interesting about what's happened in the last, what are we now, day ten maybe or something or two weeks, twelve? Uh, I don't know. Um, What's interesting to me is that there was actions taken by states um, in Europe, North America, Japan to some extent, uh, you know, United States seemingly kind of leading Europeans to take the lead on it, but coordinating their actions. That was very interesting just from the sort of American foreign policy perspective. And those were really significant sanctions, particularly the freezing of the assets of the central bank, which, you know, from a strictly legal perspective it's not clear to me that that's has a legal basis for example not that we in the in the world right now where we care about such things but i think that's going to be that's going to be some something interesting uh, down the line uh, but so these were these were significant sanctions in the conversation about swift and then these targeted sanctions against uh, specific people i don't i think those are mostly you know irrelevant what's more surprising to me and what's is something that hasn't happened is that the opinion the pu public opinion in the west the what's considered to be appropriate in the world of business has really changed fundamentally so it was the actions by private companies withdrawing the operations from russia that has been that has blown the most sort of psychological i mean real impact but also kind of psychological uh, um, influence on the Russian populace. Yes, there were all of these former European politicians who resigned from boards of Russian companies. I've talked about that for years, and it's so, so shocking. I mean, many people have written about it, but it was one of those scandals that was 
uh, I'm sure you know your listeners, people interested in this topic, well aware of for a long time. But it sort of was out of the kind of mainstream kind of outrage in at least in the sort of people following international business and the like. But it's you know it's like Ford withdrawing or Visa restricting its operation um, or IKEA. You know what I'm hearing from friends and acquaintances in Russia is that you know. IKEA, the withdrawal of IKEA really hit people hard. There was this kind of realization that, that we were, you know, among Russians, so, you know, we were members of sort of broader European kind of life, you know, and IKEA represented something about middle class. It's associated with Sweden, not with the United States. And the fact that of IKEA, um, you know, ending its operation in Russia, like kind of woke up a lot of people to this new reality. So I would, I would, I would, and, and, the actions of those companies, they're not really doing it because they want to punish the you know, Kremlin or something like that. I mean, they're, they're taking huge losses. But I think it's become increasingly unacceptable. Yes, they would be targets to sanction, potential sanctions, and there's a lot of uncertainty, and businesses don't like uncertainty. But I think there's been a fundamental shift in the West, looking at the images coming out of Ukraine, looking at sort of these you know children hiding away in, in metro stations and hundreds of thousands of refugees fleeing the country and the actions by this um, by this regime that I think made it no longer acceptable, socially acceptable to remain sort of in regular operations in Russia. And that, I think, is the big shift. That is the new fundamental reality that Russia is going to be dealing with for a long time. Just one thing I want to clarify for our listeners, since you talked about where we are in terms of the unfolding timeline, we're having this conversation on March right. 7th. There's going to be some delay before this, this airs. Right. With respect sure. to the situation on the battlefield um, and in Ukraine, it's so fluid. Who knows that's, that's, where we'll be uh, just like 48 hours from now. But but in terms of the larger context, right. I wanted to pick up on something else you said, which was, um, I, I don't want to get distracted from the main message you were conveying, which is really, I think, interesting and important. But you said just in passing, uh, with respect to the individual sanctions, as something like, well, we got these individual sanctions on a few people, but like these don't matter. Right, right. And I wanted to um, explore that a bit because, of course, in, um, in anti-corruption circles, if that's a thing, not just in response to the Ukraine invasion, but since the passage of the Magnitsky Act, which you mentioned earlier when President Obama mm-hmm. signed, signed that act, there's been um, much more focus on you know, sometimes targeted sanctions, sometimes people call them smart sanctions, individual sanctions, whatever, mm-hmm. but basically identifying not just human rights abusers um, but or war criminals, but people engaged in serious corruption whose wealth uh, derives from likely illicit sources and, and going after those people, imposing sanctions, freezing their assets, possibly seizing their assets, and so forth. So this was something that already existed before the current crisis in, in Ukraine. It's a tool that had already been deployed, both as a tool of foreign policy with respect to sanctions lists and with respect to, in some cases, trying to go after the illicit wealth of kleptocrats, oligarchs, and so forth. It's been ramped up a lot. Um, right. Since the since the the renewed Russian invasion of, of uh, Ukraine, and uh, there's been a lot of discussion of this. Uh, some of it focuses on the kind of symbolic importance of seizing these mega yachts or not letting people land their private planes in right. places they might otherwise like to go. Um, some have suggested that although no one thinks that this is going to cause the Putin regime to collapse tomorrow, that 
these kinds of sanctions more than the sort more than things that hurt sort of the average Russian are likely to be politically consequential. It sounds from what you said before uh, that your perspective is a bit different, at least with respect to efficacy. But there's, there's a lot here. I realize I'm not asking a single focused question, more like a cluster of questions, but I'd love you to talk a little bit more about the use of targeted individual sanctions, asset seizures, et cetera, um, their, their appropriateness as, a, as an anti-corruption tool, and also their effectiveness as a foreign policy tool. Well, I don't, you know, I'm not really an expert in that field so much. So I, I don't want to step on anything that I, I don't know. I know I know these are complicated debates. There's important sort of legal discussions about the use of uh, these individual sanctions and, and, and what they really mean and how they uh, how effective they are. Um, I can tell you, let me just, I'll read you a little bit. This is kind of paragraph. It's an anecdote that I learned about in the book. So this is, um, this is about, um, so the timeline, you know, December 2012 or so, this is when the Magnitsky Act or the, the Obama administration, you know, sanctions the first, you know, some of these low, low level police people and you know, involved supposedly, you know, allegedly, most likely, of course, involved in whatever it is that happened to Magnitsky, murder or torture that led to, it, to his death or whatever. And in December of that year, and this is also around the same time when the situation in Cyprus starting to unravel, the sort of spillover of the you know, Eurozone issues. Um, and so Putin begins begins this campaign. Uh, it's called Deoffshoreization, you know, anti-offshoreization of the Russian economy. And he gives the address to the Federal Assembly of Russia. And there's all of this writing about, you know, oh, my goodness, we're so dependent on these Western jurisdictions. So many of our companies, I mean, including state own entities, you know, had these correspondent banks in Cyprus and Holland and all these different places. Uh, you know, we need to basically bring bring these companies back ashore. And they pass a variety of laws, you know, prohibiting, you know, members of the parliament from directing own, directly owning property or even their relatives, all of these things. And it's sort of this game of whack-a-mole. You know, I documented in the, in the book, it amounts to nothing. Uh, ultimately, you know, people find ways around it through anonymous you know trusts and all kinds of stuff it, it you know and uh, there's all kinds of data showing that you know if, if if anything you know people just shifted to different types of offshore jurisdictions and the like but in terms of individual sanctions uh, there's this fellow by the name of Gennady Timchenko he is a, a friend of Putin's and was uh, actually a citizen of Finland for a long time I'm not sure that he, he still is but he was one of these sort of new oligarchs or stoligarchs, as they're known, a new sort of um, bunch of wealthy business people who came to power. He's, he's involved in kind of um, transporting, uh, selling of Russian oil to Western um, entities. So um, in 2014, OK, so now we're into the sort of Ukraine timeline, uh, deauthorization is still going on, uh, and Gennady Timchenko had been sanctioned. So. Gennady Timchenko had to give up the use of his Gulfstream jet, okay, because of the U.S. sanctions prohibited Gulfstream Aerospace Corporation from serving these aircraft. That four years later in 2018, this was after the, you know, 
screw pops after the electrical interference in the U.S. in 2016. In 2018, the jet was re-registered to something called LTS Holdings, which is a British Virgin Islands company uh, that had been sanctioned by the U.S. government in 2015. But, but, but 20, by 2018, the aircraft was re-registered to a new owner in Luxembourg, a, a Cyprus-based company called Amerivo Holdings Limited which, as we learned, was itself a subsidiary of the Russian Direct Investment Fund. It's a sovereign fund of the government of the Russian Federation. So, in other words, to avoid these prohibitions and sanctions, this key member of the Russian economic elite simply transferred the jet to an official entity of the Russian government, which itself was registered offshore and just happened to not be subject to sanctions. So, this idea of sanctioning individuals playing this game of whack-a-mole, while simultaneously there's an entire legal financial infrastructure in the West that protects anonymity, that uh, you know can use this, these sort of various protections from jurisdictions in all around the world. Uh, you know, my colleague uh, Casey Michelle has written a book about this and, so, and spoke on the subject so much. You know, while that infrastructure exists in the West, individual sanctions of this type, I don't think they'll ever be effective in, in, ch in changing the course of, 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 government, uh, of, of government action. I, I think something like what's happening now, um, so something that's painful also in the West. So these individual sanctions, the sort of pain goes one way. And the way to know if sanctions are effective is if, if the pain affecting us in the West are we seeing higher prices of gas? Yes, we are. It's painful. That means it really hurts. That means it's probably going to work. If it doesn't really hurt us, it's probably not going to have an effect. That's sort of my rule of thumb about individual sanctions versus other types of sanctions. I'm not at all sure if that really addressed your original question. but let's, It let's does. I'm glad you brought up Casey and his work. We've had him on the podcast before. Yeah. I think a month or two ago, he, he, he spoke, obviously, before any of the recent developments, mm -hmm. but talking about a lot of these issues and particularly the role of the United States in, yeah. you know, essentially being a haven for, for money launderers. With respect to the individual sanctions, I, I'm glad you brought up the concern about circumvention because I've heard two lines of criticism as to why individual sanctions won't help in, in this case with respect to, with respect to something like what's going on uh, in Russia and Ukraine. One argument is the one that you made, which is that, um, the individual sanctions are too easy to get around. Uh, you know, not completely. There are some yachts that have been seized and like those things are expensive right. and that people who right. own them are unhappy they can't have them. You know, someone might have to sell a football team that they own or, or what have you. Um, the other line of criticism, yeah. and I'd be interested in your views on this as well, although for, given your perspective, this might be more hypothetical, even if they did hurt um, those members of the Russian economic elite who own a lot of property abroad, who spend a lot of time abroad and so forth. Uh, the, the concern is that Putin doesn't depend on those people nearly as much as those people depend on Putin. Like there's this idea that maybe, um, you know, again, maybe, the, maybe Putin doesn't care about the hardship of the ordinary Russian citizen, but Putin might have to care about the hardship of the oligarchs because, you know, he kind of needs their support. But then there's a perspective that says he doesn't really need their support that much. They might be upset about this, but the people Putin really depends on for support are people who don't really have 
significant interests outside of, of Russia. Um, you know, since you did bring up, I'd love your perspective on that, but, but let me also ask you, since you brought up uh, Case Michelle, and I know you, the two of you have written together about some of these broader issues, you, and, and you talked about the complicity of West, the West and Western institutions in allowing what's essentially money laundering or the proceeds of, of corruption. Of course, this is not necessarily directly tied to the current events in Ukraine and the Western sanctions as a response to the unprovoked military aggression, but it's all of a piece and that we're trying to figure out the, the right way to respond. Let me ask you on this, a, a sort of a two-part question. Uh, one is what, what does need to be done either instead of, or in addition to the kinds of targeted, inter, in, targeted individual sanctions that we've seen under things like the Magnitsky law. And second, although this, this is to, calls for total speculation, do you think that it's possible that the tragic recent events with respect to Russia's aggression in Ukraine um, might make it more politically feasible to get some movement on parts of that reform agenda that might have been difficult to advance under what we might call ordinary political circumstances? Yeah, I mean, to, you know, to go back to the first point, I absolutely think that there was this misconception in the West, this idea that Putin really needed the oligarchs. Um, you know, most of the wealth that these people rely on, there's some exceptions, but they're exceptions that prove the rules, uh, are what you might call country-specific assets, or fixed assets. In other words, these are mines and oil fields and, you know, nickel, <laughs> you know, deposits. That, that are physically in Russia. They, you, you can't um, move them outside the country. I mean, Yandex, the, the Russian sort of internet giant, you, know, you can sort of imagine, you know, moving your engineers and sort of human capital and, you know, code that you use. You can sort of imagine moving those things outside the boundary uh, of the country and, and some of it has been moved. But you can't move these, these fixed assets. And if you want to keep having ownership of those assets in Russia, you need to have a good relationship with the government. You need to have a good relationship with Putin. Certainly, you know, they have access to, uh, you know, to the higher echelons of the government. Some of them have been able to have direct conversations with with Putin. You know, this famous affair of Vladimir Yevtushenko, who got into dispute with, with Rosneft in sort of 2012-2014 timeline and lost uh, his oil company, Bashneft, you know, there was some reporting about it that essentially he used to be able to pick up a phone and, and call Putin, um, and then after that, that ceased to be the case. So it's clear that some of these guys either used to, definitely not in recent years, but before, uh, at least had the ear um, of, of Putin or could meet with him. And that's influence. That's not. That's not nothing. You know, your uh, high school teacher from provincial Russian city can can do that. But the idea that that they can then somehow influence the government to do this or that vis-a-vis -vis some policies that are unrelated to economic management, um, you know, that was the foundational decree, sort of the financial foundational agreement of Putin's rule. You know, very early when he came to power, there was this famous meeting when he gathered all the oligarchs and told them, you know, stay out of politics. And I'll, I'll I'll let you do business, and those people who spoke up against that um, or happened to own assets in the media space, you know, were exiled um, or imprisoned, and everyone else, uh, you know, continued to do business. 
and I also talk about that this is based on research by uh, Daniel Traisman at UCLA, but you know he traced the wealth of these oligarchs, you know, going back to the early 2000s. And save for a few examples of most people involved in the Yukos affair, you know, the list of Russian billionaires is is expanded. First of all, there's no billionaires in Russia in the year 2000. There's over 100, or there was over 100, you know, a year or two ago. Um, and all of the folks who were rich in the year 2000 just became richer under Putin primarily and have done tremendously well and have taken advantage of all of these, you know, foreign listings, ownership of assets abroad, a kind of... Um, you know, de-risking their exposure to Russia in, in various ways. And Putin tolerated just fine, but the idea that they somehow therefore had influence or could do something to change, you know, Russian, Russian policy towards Ukraine or, you know, military decisions, I think that was always a wrong assumption. So that's, uh, you know, that's related to that. And then remind me, that was the second, second part of your question. So I wanted to pick up on your reference to your work with Casey Michelle and uh, oh, the, yeah. more generally to talk a little bit about how, um, again, sort of a two-part question. The first, is, okay. the first part is what, what could be done or should be done. This isn't really a Ukraine foreign policy specific question, actually. This is more like... There are a lot of people who have a lot of wealth that probably comes from illicit sources, and they're the so-called enablers or facilitators in the West, in New York, in London, in Paris, in Dubai, etc. Um, what, what, given that under the current system, sanctions are so easy to evade, as you were recounting before, what can or should be done to address those problems? And the second part of this question is more of a political question. It's totally in inviting speculation. Obviously, mm -hmm. none of us can know. I don't know what's going to happen two days from now. So I don't know how I can ask mm -hmm. you to predict what's going to happen you know, a year or two from now. But whether, given the focus on the oligarchs and their corrupt wealth and the need for sanctions and so forth coming out of the current crisis, whether you think that it might be possible that... Um, the, the tragedy that's unfolding in Ukraine might produce the somewhat positive effect of making it more politically feasible to advance an agenda that might otherwise stall, given the vested interests in the West in not you know, looking too hard at dirty money. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think there's already been efforts afoot in the U.S. over the last couple of years, and Casey has done a great job of documenting. You know, he's a prolific writer. Folks who are interested in, in it should, you know, follow him on Twitter. He does a, a great service by documenting sort of changes that are taking place and specifics of laws. Um, and there's been, uh, you know, significant progress made on, you know, banning anonymous shell companies and, you know, uh, making it much more difficult for kind of dirty, you know, quote unquote, dirty money, corrupt money to to settle in in the West. Um, but I think I probably differ sort of philosophically with uh, people like Casey, sort of like writers and advocates for the idea of, of reform in the West. I'm all for the reform in the West, and there's just many laws that are already on the books that aren't being followed. Um, and certainly there's things that could be done to make it just to make the system much more transparent, to sort of increase the costs for for these folks. Um, but, you know, the the fundamental kind of um, building block 
of the global financial system is the openness of Western economies, uh, Western um, financial markets. And the global financial system is really American financial system. I mean, it's really uh, the United States has so much weight and influence that we might as well think of it as sort of a American financial system and its non-American offshoot, offshoots in terms of the dominance of the U.S. dollar or the sheer um, size of the financial market in the United States. And so, and another reason why the, the system has been so successful is because there's genuine rule of law um, in the West, in the United States and other, and other jurisdictions um, in, in places we all, you know, the usual suspects. And so, to some extent, the reason why they are attractive is because the system is open and governed by the rule of law. I think you can make it more transparent. I think you can make it more difficult for quote-unquote dirty money to enter the system. But who makes the decision what is dirty money and what isn't dirty money? Uh, what money that's come out of Russia in the last 30 years isn't, in some sense, tainted by politics or corruption or impropriety? I mean, to do business in Russia in the last 30 years is to be involved in corruption. I mean, there's no other way essentially to do it. I mean, you can find exceptions. There have been these interesting, exciting startups that, that's, that's made money, that, you know, pay taxes. I'm sure there's, you can find instances, but when you talk about this kind of big money, especially those related to sort of legacy, you know, state socialist um, assets. And the situation, by the way, the situation is no different than Ukraine. Ukraine went through the same, you know, set of, um, you know, rounds of redistribution of, of property control um, and the oligarchic system in Ukraine, whatever's left of it now, I'm not sure, and what, what how it's going to be reconstituted uh, when I hope this is, this is over. Um, but it's going to continue having these, these types of issues. I mean, is, is the money coming out of Saudi Aramco, is it dirty money? Is it clean money? Uh, you know, who kind of makes that call? And while there's certainly examples, egregious examples that we can think about, you know, Citibank facilitating laundering of Mexican cartels and human trafficking and, you know, I mean, you know, an idea that some of these banks just look at this as sort of cost of doing business, writing big fines to the treasury and kind of carrying on. Um, I I just think that, you know, those types of issues, of course, we need to deal with the sort of outright criminality. But once we move into the spectrum of like, um, you know, let's talk about UCAS, even under uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, you know, who spent 10 years in prison, who is now living abroad, who is advocating for, you know, human rights and advocating against Putin regime. But would anybody claim that his acquisition of UCAS in the 90s was done sort of you know, appropriately or legally or in any way kind of uh, without, um, you know, taint of corruption? I mean, nobody would make that claim. And so it becomes then a kind of choice, you know, um, it, do we, are we really willing to close off this, to make the system more closed in the West? Um, maybe, maybe that's the choice that ought to be made. Um, you know, are we willing to 
restrict applications of the rule of law based on people's nationality. I don't know. I mean, that that's that strikes me as going against the spirit of of the rule of law. But maybe we make that decision. But I just want to think. I just want to say that fundamentally, I'm not. I mean, I'm not the first person to 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 note to note that. But fundamentally, an open system governed by the rule of law is going to be attractive to people from places that are closed and that don't have a rule of law system. And because we have an international financial system that's based on open financial borders and relatively easy transfer of money facilitated by, you know, things like SWIFT or just, you know, satellite technology, internet, emergence of crypto uh, currencies and other blockchain technologies, um, it, at a certain at a certain point, you kind of have to pick. You know, do you want to keep the rule of law and open financial system, or do you want to really concentrate on punishing uh, this sort of corruption? And again, I just want to make it, make it clear: I'm not talking about you know outright criminal activity, uh, money laundering uh, that's uh, of you know based on you know human trafficking, drug trafficking. Um, I'm not talking about terrorist financing or anything like that. Obviously, those are issues that ought to be ought to be regulated and and, and and controlled. And I'm with Casey on the notion that we need to do something about some of these, you know, incentives in local American politics that you know states like Delaware or South Dakota or Nevada have become havens for anonymous companies and for you know wealth that's been hidden and been stolen from developing countries, low-income countries. You know, I just think it's obscene. It should be, it should be uh, impolite. It should be in, inappropriate. It should be, um, you know, kind of a, I don't know, sc- scarlet letter. You know, among legal community to, or something. You know, to do business in those in those circles is to is to be seen as sort of a, uh, you know, used car sales salesman or something like that. I don't know. Uh, we need a culture. Let's not shift. denigrate all the honorable used car salesmen listening to our podcast. Yes, apologies <laughs> to all the used car salesmen that are listening to this podcast. Uh, but you know, take it in the spirit in which it's intended. But I, I guess I don't know. So I so I so I am um, I'm skeptical that um, some fundamental change, some law in the West can change what has been you know half a century of this happening in one 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 shape or another. And I can I can tell you that. What's likely, what I, you know, what's likely, if you want me to speculate, I would imagine what what will probably happen is there's going to be an effort in the U.S. to 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 make it, you know, to make it so the United States is no longer the central offshore jurisdiction uh, in the world. Um, there's probably going to be some efforts in the U.K. You know, the dynamic with the U.K. just as an aside is because the United States has actually made a lot of changes that made it difficult for foreign entities to like list on the New York Stock Exchange. They've raised some uh, listing requirements after these scandals with these Chinese companies in sort of 2010, 2011. And after after 9-11, there was all these new rules that made it sort of more complicated to park money here for some entities. And then what happened in the UK is that UK has always tried to sort of be less regulated, a little bit less regulated to be competitive with the United States. So I'm not even sure what's going to happen in the UK on that front. But what, what's going to happen in the US, I suspect, is that 
I'm going to make it difficult for foreign entities to park money here, hopefully. Uh, that money is going to go flow somewhere else. This um, topic is going to, you know, be off the front pages of newspapers. Um, you know, the new season of Bachelor will come on or Netflix will come out when you hit show. Americans will move on. The attention span of our Congress is, is very short on these issues. I hope something will change. But I think um, maybe we'll go back to the world where where this money gets parked in these you know, exotic locations in the Caribbean or elsewhere. Um, and uh, and it'll just, there will be just higher costs of doing it, maybe more risky. Maybe you park your money in British Virgin Islands and you, there used to be a you know, tenth of a percent chance that you'll lose it. Maybe they'll they'll, they'll go they'll, they'll go up to one or two percent if you're if you're some oligarch from some some place like you know Eastern Europe or Africa or certain places in Asia or Latin America uh, maybe that risk goes up tenfold to say one percent it's still not going to be as high as keeping your money inside those countries where the risk of losing your assets is you know 20 30 50 percent especially when there's a change in government and so the fundamental structure of the global financial system is such that it promotes this this sort of behavior, creates these incentives. And so long as we have countries with endowed with natural resources or receive a lot of foreign aid um, that are not, they don't have functioning governments, don't have the rule of law, don't have an independent judiciary, and a strong and vibrant civil society that fights these issues, the idea that Washington can solve this problem by fiat. It seems to me kind of too too naive. Yeah. Fair enough, and a useful reminder that um, sometimes the deeper problems here will require deeper, more structural solutions. Um, and I take it from what you say, a lot of it has to do with eventually, um, slowly, fitfully moving ahead with the process of building the rule of law. Um, and suppressing corruption in the countries that are the origin of this capital, or else there's just this inexorable push to find places to park your money where it will be safer. And I take it you're saying, my understanding is you're not saying that we shouldn't be trying to do all these things that Casey and others have said we should try to do, we being policymakers in the West, but ultimately um, building more rule-based, lower corruption Societies and governments in the sources of these capital has to this this capital outflow has to be a big big part of it. Um, yeah, and it, it and it will have to be done by people in those countries. I mean, there's certain things that we can do, and um, you know, I am a kind of a, pro- a product of American foreign policy in the way you know I came to the U.S. as a as a foreign exchange student funded by a State Department program to bring young people from the former Soviet Union to learn about, you know, American system and to sort of, and I've been writing about that part of the world and teaching about it and, and all this kind of stuff. And I'm, you know, I'm not completely against these, these programs, um, anti-corruption initiatives and trainings and facilitating of, you know, development of civil society and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it needs to be a something that's driven by local, you know, population. Um, and, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully we'll see some, some, some of that in, in the years ahead, although so much else is going on that it's, it's hard to envision at the moment. True. I'll just as we, as we close the interview, we are out of time. I will, I will note, um, that 
there are some who believe very strongly that the process you were just describing was starting to happen in Ukraine, um, and that that may and one of the and one hopes that um, the country will survive the the current invasion not only in the sense of maintaining its sovereignty and territorial integrity, but if it is indeed true that Ukraine was starting to make that kind of progress slowly, fitfully, haltingly, um, but nonetheless progress, that that, that that project will continue as well. Um, but thank you so much. Thank you. This is extraordinarily, extraordinarily useful in um, providing some uh, understanding of the larger context in which a lot of the headline events have been taken place. I've, I've learned a lot from our conversation. I'm sure our listeners have as well. So Igor, thank you so much uh, for joining me on the podcast today. Are you very welcome? And thank you for having me. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. We have more interviews on Ukraine lined up and we will air them throughout the upcoming weeks. If you want to learn more, check out the show notes and also make sure to listen to the interview with Casey Michelle, which was mentioned in the episode. Just search your podcast feed for episode 66. If you want to support our podcast, please share this episode. To stay tuned, follow us on Twitter under at KickbackGAP. As always, Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is produced by Niels Köbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke, with assistance by Amy Assad and music by Kaihan Gorkar. Stay safe, everyone. Until next time.